This episode is brought to you by AREP, American Real Estate Partners. I think it's important for the president to take a leadership position. Affordable housing is a priority and to have somebody, you know, in leadership, not only indicate its priority, but actually have the beginnings of the right prescriptions to deal with it. We have to have that. The problem is the trickle down and the, the politics of agreeing on different elements of it and the volume of commitments and priorities is where things grind to a halt. Last week, the Biden administration released what the government is calling a housing action plan, a collection of changes and initiatives it says is aimed at closing the country's housing supply shortfall in half a decade. The announcement comes as Biden has tried to encourage local governments to walk back single-family zoning, which many people say is one of the causes of the affordability crisis. Zoning gets a mention in this plan too. One of its five focus areas is around incentivising and rewarding changes to zoning and land use regulations, allowing for more housing density. This is BizNow Reports. I'm Miriam Hall. And today we're speaking with Rafael Sestero, the CEO of the Community Preservation Corporation, a non-profit affordable housing and community revitalisation finance company, and Kirk Goodrich, a partner at affordable housing developer Monadnock Development and a board chair of the New York Association for Affordable Development. Business partners and former college roommates, they also host a podcast called The Housing Problem that's aimed at changing the tenor of the conversation around New York and housing. I first asked Kirk what he thinks about the proposal the White House has released. This is really the second bite of the apple for the Biden administration on affordable housing, right? I think Build Back Better was a more robust piece of legislation that was really um, had the had the kind of volume of commitment, um, you know, to housing authorities, to rental assistance, uh, to help supply um, through changes to the low income housing tax credit program that would have had, I think, a consequential impact. Uh, but it didn't have the necessary support in Congress. And so this is an effort by the Biden administration to do the best they could without that sort of bipartisan momentum and support from Congress. And so you really have to interpret this housing platform as the best they could do under the circumstances and not judge it against what all our expectations were with respect to Build Back Better. And from that perspective, I think it, it focuses on the right things, which is incentivizing supply um, in places like New York um, and other places in the country that are high demand areas. We just don't produce enough housing. We produce less than half of what we need annually. And then in the suburbs across the country, there's resistance to affordable housing and often any kind of multifamily housing. So this plan really focuses on incentivizing supply in a variety of ways, which I think is important. Biden's economic agenda, a bill known as Build Back Better, died in December, though the White House is said to be trying to salvage it, though it's not really clear how. 
In this housing plan, the administration says it plans to launch new financing programs to help the production and preservation of smaller-scale housing like accessory dwelling units. There are also plans to expand and streamline programs like the low-income housing tax credits. There's plans to give federal land to smaller landlords and non-profits and also to work with the private sector to try and ease supply chain issues. But I asked Raphael if he views this as just a watered-down version of what the administration had hoped to achieve with Build Back Better. The executive branch has limited powers, right? There's, there's only so much that the Biden administration can do without the support of Congress. And so the, the, the things that they have focused on are the things that they can do and they know they can do. And they're not insignificant things, um, you know, and they're, they're very technical and they're a little bit um, wonky, if you will, but they are important things. Right. So so I think the first thing that, that Kirk and I, you know, that Kirk said that I agree with, which is, you know, the Biden administration really gets it. They understand that we have a housing crisis in this country and they're trying. Right. They tried with Build Back Better. That didn't go go their way. So now they're back at it, trying again to do what they can do with the tools that are at their disposal as an executive branch that doesn't yet have Congress in support of their agenda. And so I think, um, yeah, uh, is it a little watered down from where their original vision was? A hundred percent. But that doesn't mean it's not important. And that doesn't mean that, that, that it isn't something that will have an impact at driving more housing supply and, and, and more production. So let me ask you this, Raphael, what would you say is the most significant thing they've proposed? I mean, and how adequate do you think they are? I know it's a good thing to keep a conversation going, but when it comes to housing crisis, I mean, a conversation needs to kind of translate into action at some point. There's a number of things that they have done uh, or, or that they are highlighting that are important to do, which is to, uh, w- which focuses around Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which are the largest providers of long-term, you know, debt for for the affordable housing industry. And so, one of the things that that they've highlighted in their plan is working with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to 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 change their products a little bit. So that they can do more um, long-term lending for affordable housing uh, uh, projects under the low-income housing tax credit program, um, and some and some of the other uh, federal programs that invest in affordable housing. That doesn't sound super great, but the reality is is that all of these projects need long-term debt, and Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are the only people uh, that 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 are providing that with any consistency in the marketplace. And so getting them to do even more, getting them, giving them the leeway to innovate new products that will extend terms, lower rates, allow developers to lock in interest rates in a rising interest rate environment earlier in the process. I think all those things are really important that will help drive uh, more production. a couple of other things that they did, um, you know, they restarted um, something called the the federal finance. The fe- there's there's a, a, a an entity called the Federal Financing Bank that was investing in housing um, uh, right after the Great Recession, 
that was stopped during the Trump administration. The Biden administration has restarted that. Why is that important? Because one of the most important vehicles for financing affordable housing is the issuance of government-backed, tax-exempt, and taxable bond financing. And having the Federal Financing Bank as a buyer in that marketplace ensures that there's liquidity and there's capital available so that th those projects um, can go forward. So again, a little wonky, a little technical, but really important. Kirk, maybe you could um, take us from the wonky into the kind of the practical. So, because you're a, you're a developer, so maybe you could could you talk us through how this might affect what kinds of developments could be done, um, affect how much quicker or how much easier it would be potentially uh, if financing changes and these pilots are rolled out. So, so I want to I'll say a word about uh, the the impact of some of these things on our sort of development community. The, the first thing is um, we, we actually have a, a significant amount of low-income housing tax credit equity as a result of the 4% rate being locked uh, a couple of years ago. And so deals went from being 50 to 60 to 80 million or more. Um, and that created a situation where a lot of the long-time large direct purchases of tax credits, Wells Fargo, B of A, and others, their appetite to absorb all of this is limited. So if you're, uh, if you're a developer that relies on a low-income housing tax credit, which we all know has been the main production engine for, uh, for working uh, poor folks and for low-income housing since 1986, and you have a pipeline of projects, but you can't find investors who want to buy it, which is a real problem um, uh, for us and, and others in the industry, giving Freddie and Fannie, who actually a short time ago were really out of the market entirely and now are back in a big way. And we're talking about expanding their ability to pick up some of the excess that the large financial institutions like Wells and B of A and Chase can't absorb, that's like critically important, timely. It's probably the most timely, practical way to actually deliver rental housing in a unabated way. And I think from, from our perspective of the everything that's listed here, it's probably the, the simplest thing that's going to translate into production right away. Now, I want to highlight a couple other things I think are important. Um, so the one conceptually the focus on enhancing, um, you know, middle-income and working-class home buyers, um, and creating a, an ability for people to convert accessory dwelling units and look at purchase of two and four-family homes. Uh, one of the themes that Raphael and I have sort of put forward on the on the Housing Problem podcast is that affordable housing policy done right can't just be about safety nets. It can't just be about helping the most vulnerable uh, and the poorest. It has to focus on helping working and middle-class families be upwardly mobile. And that's particularly true in, in uh, black and brown communities that have been left behind and left out. So the Biden administration gets this. They understand that, you know, that there has to be an effort to allow people in, in you know, cities like New York that are really expensive places to buy homes and build homes um, where they grew up 
um, instead of having situations like in the New York area, where you live in New York and, and uh, you grew up in New York and you end up buying a home in the Hudson Valley or Suffolk County or in the Poconos and commuting 90 minutes each way. And so they get that. And I think it's a really fundamental shift because a lot of people in our affordable housing world locally and nationally feel like until you help the poorest of the poor um, in the way they need to be helped, like you really shouldn't be putting resources into this other bucket. And, and one of the things we've uh, advanced is this idea that you got to do both. That we can walk and chew gum at the same time. The other thing I think is really important as a policy statement, I'm not sure about, you know, what it will mean um, and how it will be implemented is incentivize like tying federal grants uh, to participating jurisdictions based on their compliance and their flexibility around local zoning resolutions. And they're essentially, you know, are you a community that is welcoming to affordable housing? Are you a community that's welcome, uh, welcoming to multifamily workforce housing? And if not, then there should be a consequence to that. And, and I think that caught my eye immediately. And I think it's a very important statement even if the implementation of it, um, you know, we're uncertain about it. This is a big part of this, well, it's come up a lot in this um, program. One thing that's mentioned in Biden's initiative is incentivizing and rewarding changes to zoning and land use um, that would allow for more housing density. Do you think that's actually going to happen in New York and its surrounds considering how inflammatory <laughs> zoning can be? I can tell you that uh, that ultimately those decisions are really local decisions. Um, That's why I'm so confused as to why this is even in the policy. I think I think he's looking at you know you, you know you look at federal CDBG money, you look at federal home money, you look at other types of federal assistance that participating jurisdictions get, and I think the idea is to you know to have a carrot and to use that as a carrot or stick to incentivize communities. But I think the fundamental disconnect is that um, that the people who are the constituents who are the loudest voices don't care. Like they have the, the they have theirs already um, in their minds and they have a, a level of comfort. And, and I think those voices tend to be more compelling when you're really looking at um, getting local officials to act or do nothing. And that's really the challenge. So I think you look at all the, over time, Westchester County is a great example. Over time, how many decades of sanctions um, did, you know, were imposed? And it's unbelievable that they didn't care about their reputation um, you know, for, for being a series of communities that were exclusionary. They didn't, I mean, it, you know, they, they've been under, you know, um, you know, a, a settlement for God knows how many decades. And I just think, uh, you know, nimbyism is so intractable um, that it's really hard to imagine um, this working. But I think the president is doing the right thing. You've got to pull every lever. Wellness is in our DNA. At American Real Estate Partners, we believe better spaces lead to better days. 
That's why we dedicate ourselves to providing the best in health, safety, and connectivity portfolio-wide. With our entire portfolio UL Healthy Building verified and well health safety rated, our customers can increase their physical and mental well-being while encouraging and enhancing productivity. We assure the safety and comfort for our customers as they return to the workplace with confidence and clarity. That is the AREP difference. Visit AREP at AmericanREPartners.com for availabilities. New York University's Furman Center has run analysis that has found New York has some of the most exclusionary zoning in the country, which has slowed housing production. It's also described New York's suburbs as, quote, national laggards in housing development. The governor, Kathy Hogel, did actually put two proposals on the table to try and fix the problem. One would have allowed multifamily on single-family lots, and another would have allowed new apartment buildings that were close to rail stations. But neither of those options were in her formal budget, reportedly because she got local pushback. I actually think it took enormous courage by the governor in a year in which she's running for uh, to, to try to win a full term as governor, for her to put out these policies around ADUs, around um, around transit oriented uh, transit oriented development, um, you know, none, none, you know, around frankly around revising New York City's property tax code to get rid of 421A, but put something else in place that's a better program and makes more sense. None of these things are popular. They're not going to happen this legislative session. But I, I give her credit for, for, for putting a stake in the ground to say these things are things that matter. Um, so we'll see. We'll see what happens if, if she gets elected to a full term. Maybe she can make some difference. But the federal part of this is, 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 is a notch below in terms of importance, right? The governor and the state could actually do something more dramatic. We'll see whether they do, but they could. Kirk, do you think they will? <laughs> because my, my, my question is, when you're talking about, oh, we'll incentivize, we might give you some money if you, if you um, change zoning rules. But to the average constituent, like, what's that mean to them? Some random money flowing in into a, uh, to a fund that you don't know anything about? Right. The other thing that, um, so in New York City, um, when we go through rezonings, we go through a ULA process. And I think the conversations... Um, have you know, over the last you know several years has have increasingly focused on additional re- resident engagement, additional you know considerations of giving additional authority to community boards. Um, I spent a lot of time talking to community boards over the last couple of decades, and um, the, the commu- community boards. Uh, and the process of going to community boards um, is is not one that's receptive to development um, typically. And, and Raphael and I believe in resident engagement. We started our, our careers doing community organizing, but there also has to be good faith. Um, and, it, and it also has to be an understanding and a willingness for people to sacrifice for their fellow resident. Um, and that's the part that I, that is absent. You know, I was in a, a community board meet, meeting recently, I won't say which community board in a, a, a section of the city that is a poor section of the city, uh, uh, proposing a, a very large, very low income senior project. 
And at, and there were actually people saying, do we really need this? And even though I pointed out to them that the typical wait time for uh, this kind of housing for low-income seniors could be as much as five years or more, particularly in that kind of, in that community. And folks were, uh, you know, many folks were unmoved. And finally I said, I, you know, it's hard for me to understand there's not more support for this. And so, and the reason is because the people on the phone either didn't need the housing or their family didn't need the housing. So they're really spokespersons, not for the broader community and the broader needs, they're spokespersons for their particular parochial position. Does my son need, like, if somebody's mother needed senior housing that week, they would have spoke up and said, yeah, that's a good idea. If their mother got senior housing already and there was no one else who needed it, they would have said, we don't need it. It's that, you're talking about that level of self-interest, not just from elected officials, like from the people who are charged with being the stakeholders. And I think that's the part of it that's intractable, whether you're talking about the suburbs or the poorest communities in New York City. It has nothing to do with black or white, rich or poor, suburb or city. People fundamentally are just laser focused on their own interests at the expense of everyone else. I believe that. Kirk, you're not, you are not giving me a lot of hope for humanity right now. <laughs> that's, that's what I see. And, and there are people who are courageous, um, who, who take the lead, who take, you know, the, the stones and arrows, and who do things that aren't popular but are right. And I think we need a generation of elected officials and leaders in the suburbs and the city who are willing to do what folks did during the civil rights movement, to, to make decisions that at that time would not have been um, you know, popular, but were right. Where we can look back now and we say, of course Jim Crow was wrong. You know, of course you should be able to rent and buy a home wherever you want to without respect to race and, and other issues. But like back then, I'm not sure the majority of, you know, communities supported these things. And so I just think that courage is not rewarded or elevated in our political dialogue. Um, and you see it on both sides. Raphael, I want to ask you, because you have worked in the city, what happens to people? We look to, we look to these politicians for bold, courageous ideas and, and they're not always happening. I think in fairness to communities, um, they have seen a lot of development. You know, when Kirk and I first started in this business back in 19, in the late 1980s, early 90s, we were focused on rebuilding neighborhoods because they had been bombed out because of disinvestment and, 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 and white flight during the, during the 70s. And, and, and everybody in those neighborhoods was cheering development that was, you know, that was happening, right? And that was 30 years ago, right? And we've gone through a pretty consistent cycle of investment in affordable housing and development. And I think in fairness to communities, um, a lot of folks are still feeling an enormous squeeze around affordability, yet they see all this development happening and they don't have the tools or don't understand why, if we're doing all of this 
things aren't getting better. And so I think there is a legitimate issue here um, that that I think there are a lot of people who are are, are concerned about and face. I, look, I do think that um, you know the political landscape is changed dramatically, and it is you know a lot easier to turn something down than it is to support something and see something get approved that is unpopular. So when there's a a big initiative or a big policy out like the one that's come out from Biden just in the last week, I mean, do you think that does anything to shift the conversation? I, I think it's important for the president to take a leadership position. Um, he has a bully pulpit. I think uh, affordable housing is a priority and to have somebody you know, in leadership, not only indicate it's a priority, but actually have the beginnings of the right prescriptions to deal with it, I think is we have to have that, right? Um, and and I, I think that's important. I think the, the problem is the the trickle down and the, uh, the, the politics of agreeing on different elements of it and the volume of commitments and priorities is where things grind to a halt and there really isn't consensus on it. I think the problem is the political discourse is really polarized. I also, you know, I I also feel like it's really important, um, as Raphael said, to, you know, have people produce things. So I always, the analogy we always use is, you know, if you're a plumber, you got to fix a pipe. They pay you after you do it. You're a sanitation worker. You get paid for putting garbage in a truck. You're doing, um, you know, your podcast. You're producing, con- like, everybody gets paid to do something. But we've sort of created a generation of sort of influencers, elected officials, conspiracy theorists who literally we've elevated to the highest place you can elevate people in our society and they've had tremendous financial success and notoriety and they don't produce anything like the common man or woman has to do. Raphael, what do you think is one thing that would change for the better, the conversation around housing? So look, I'm I'm a firm believer um, and, 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 you know, this does align with what Kirk said is I, I, I think we got to do things that make people on the ground in neighborhoods see some immediate benefit from from the work that's being done. I also think that our housing policy has to broaden itself from being just about development to being about other ways in which we can support people's housing needs. Because if individuals start to feel like while they may not be able to live in the building that Kirk is proposing because they're not a senior, but they're going to, but, but they, they know that there's other housing support out there to help them solve their own housing challenges. Then I think you begin to turn hearts and minds around about, about, about housing. And, and, and I think, I, I think we can do that, but I think it's going to take some rethinking of our housing policy and it's going to take us to, to, you know, realize that, Development is really important because we're way undersupplied, but there's other things that are equally as important. And whether that's down payment assistance so you can buy a new home or whether that's rental assistance so you can afford to pay the rent in the building that you live in, um, 
I think we've got to start to think about those things to support an overall development agenda. Kirk, do you have a similar point of view on that? I mean, what is one thing you would say would change the tenor of the conversation? You know, I, I think um, I think we need leadership and, and vision. I think uh, we, we're at a moment now um, where we should have that, right? There's an alignment uh, in New York State between the current governor and a current mayor, which I think is encouraging. I think uh, I saw uh, uh, both of them uh, recently at, uh, at the same event. We've seen them together often, probably more in, in, you know, since January than we saw in the prior relationship. They seem to be on the same page. I don't think leadership is only top down coming from a community organizing, community development background. I believe in neighborhood based leadership. I think that's equally important, but I do think learning from the lessons of Mayor Koch, which we talk a lot about on our uh, podcast and uh, Governor Carey during that time, um, that having uh, a visionary leadership that are on the same page is helpful. Um, And I think we have a moment um, where that exists in New York State. Um, the, The other part of that is I think we need good faith leadership at the local level. Um, and I distinguish between uh, le- uh, just, you know, people who are self-appointed leaders in communities and people who are leaders and acting in good faith uh, because they're people who are often the loudest voices in communities um, and uh, folks defer to them, but they don't always act in good faith they don't always act in the best interests of the larger needs in their communities. I think good faith leadership and vision at the local level where people are committed to make sacrifices um, in order to see their fellow residents move ahead. uh, I don't see that in exactly the same way as we saw it in the heyday, but it exists. I just think a lot of the political discord drowns it out some. And and so I think really having a combination of the kind of local neighborhood leadership with the community development corporations um, and advocates that Raffaella and I saw early in our career with aligned top level political leadership is what gives me hope going forward. Well, I'm glad to end on a hopeful note. Thank you both so much for doing this. You're welcome. Thank you. That's Kirk Goodrich. And he was speaking there with Raphael Sestero. They host a podcast called The Housing Problem, and I'll leave a link to it in the show notes. I'm Miriam Hall. Thanks for listening.